Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we have a conversation with soft machine founder Robert Wyatt. Then Greg has a Desert Island jukebox pick for you, and we'll review the new collaboration between Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and first, some music news. That is Bruce Springsteen. The number one album in the country right now is Magic. It sold 77,000 copies last week. That was good enough for the number one slot in the country, Jim. Five years ago, 77,000 might not have even gotten you into the top 10. A lot of, of records went platinum in one week, uh, yeah. as little as, as five years ago. Absolutely. These are hard times for the music industry. A few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Kanye West 50 Cent duel was going to set up a big fourth quarter, or the record industry was hoping that it would set up a big fourth quarter. That is a time traditionally that the music industry makes the bulk of its money on record sales. Kanye and 50 did their part. They sold about 1.5 million copies in a week between them. This week, record sales are down nearly 20% from where they were in 2006, and 2006 wasn't a great year. Number two, Kid Rock is right around the same territory as the, as the Springsteen record, and the Rascal Flats album at number three is around 70,000. So these are really disappointing numbers for the music industry. So, so what are the uh, record companies doing? Uh, reaching out with, with kind, warmth, and generosity toward their consumers? No, they're sending these little letters to students at universities around the country, basically saying that if you don't stop downloading, we're going to sue you. <laughs> <laughs> this campaign has been going on for four years, Jim. We've been reporting on it. The Jamie Thomas trial was the was the outcome of one of those warning letters. She went to trial. She lost the trial. Uh, She's now in the appeal stage, but she's liable for $225,000. On top of that now, the record industry is continuing this campaign against college campuses and the students there who are downloading music. The 411 warning letters that they sent out this week bring the total to 3,700 in the last four years. In other words, they are shaking down college students, basically saying, if you don't stop downloading, we're going to take you to court. Well, maybe this woman will turn the uh, fate of the music industry around, Greg. Every time they turn the lights down Just wanna go that extra mile for you My display of affection Feels like no one else in the room Rocking it down like there's no other room We keep on rocking, rocking, keep on rocking Cameras are flashing Greg, that is a song called Gimme More, which opens up the fifth 
album by Britney Spears comes out on Tuesday. It's already streaming on the web several places for free. Now the uh, soon-to-be 26-year-old Louisiana-born entertainer is putting out her long-awaited fifth album, her first record, in about four years. You know, we have a saying at Sound Opinions when we're trying to explain the show to people who don't (laughs) understand it. We listen to Britney Spears so you don't have to. (laughs) That having been said, I don't believe it's impossible that this young woman could have made a great album, an artistic triumph, okay? Consider what she has been through. A divorce, a custody fight for her children, substance abuse. I mean, great artists throughout history have drawn from considerable pain in their life to make wonderful uplifting art out of it, or at least cathartic art. Did that happen or not? We'll save that for the second part of this review. Blackout is its name. The record company tells us that it's so named for blacking out the negativity (laughs) in her life. That's what Britney's intending to do. Did she pull it off? Let's hear a track from the record called Piece of Me on Sound Opinions. I'm since I was 17 Don't matter if I step on the scene Or shrink away to the Philippines They still gon' put pictures of my derriere In the magazine You want a piece of me You want a piece of me I bad media karma Another day, another drama Guess I can't see the harm in working And being a mom And with a kid on my arm I'm still an exceptional earner You want a piece of me Britney Spears with her manifesto, Piece of Me from the fifth album of her career, Blackout. So Britney taking the tabloid press to task in that song. Yeah, boohoo. Complaining about being turned into a product by those mean people <laughs> who run the media. Uh, that would include us. She she has been conducting her career as a product. Everything's for sale in Britney Spears's career. She's made no bones about it, and neither has a record company. At a music festival a couple of years ago, there was a panel where they were talking about signing Britney Spears, and the A&R guy who signed her, Jeff Fenster of Jive Records, said, I didn't sign her based on the music. I didn't like the music that much, but man, she looked really tawdry in these cut-off shorts, sitting on this blanket, cuddling a, uh, a puppy dog. And here's a direct quote from this guy. She looked like the sweet all-American girl that you just wanted to defile and do bad things to, and that appealed to me. Jive Records, the label whose uh, other uh, top-selling artist is Robert Sylvester Kelly, yeah. under indictment for charges of child pornography. Well, the Kelly model is, is instructive here, Jim, because what Britney has done is proven is, is that there is no such thing as bad publicity. Her career apparently was a train wreck after those MTV awards yep. where she just looked like a zombie up Fire there on her stage. Manager. And she's had all this bad run of publicity with her divorce and her parenting skills being on public display every well, day. The, the family courts in California trying to decide if she should retain custody of her two children. Exactly. And as you said, she could have sung about that. Instead, she's pointing fingers at the press saying, you bad people, why are you writing about me? That said, of the five Britney Spears records, this is by far the best one. And I say that strictly because the production of this record is first rate. These songs are going to sound great at a club. The beats are fantastic. She's got 23 songwriters on this record, <laughs> a half dozen producers. I mean, 
It doesn't even sound like Britney Spears. Her voice is so distorted, so manipulated. The best thing about this Britney Spears record is it doesn't even sound like Britney Spears is on it. No, she's barely on it, Greg. Look, the digital technology now exists to auto-tune, pitch-correct anybody. I mean, I could make you sound like the late Beverly Sills, okay? (laughs) So she's barely on this. The, you know, woe is me, I'm in the glare of the spotlight is one problem here. Much bigger, though, much bigger, is that the 12 songs are dominated by the same tawdry pole dance routine that she's been giving us since the beginning of her career. Now, some of our egg-headed peers in the critical world have made a defense that Britney is a post-feminist, <laughs> that she is in control of the exploitation of her own sexuality to her own ends. Bull. This is a, a woman who sang about being a slave to you. And the level of, of lyric here, which she didn't write, but she cheerfully sings, would make Penthouse Forum look like <laughs> Nabokov, okay? Baby, I'm just hot for taking. Don't you want to see me naked? It's on and on and on. You know, to be giving us this routine at the same time when she's literally fighting to keep her children in her life and, and melting down in public view, anybody who does want a piece of her ought to be ashamed of themselves. Well, you know, I find it interesting that you're complaining about the sexual con- content of this record, because what I see is what she's doing is kind of a PG version of what everybody else on the pop spectrum is doing these days. I mean, you look at a you know Janet Jackson record or a Pussycat Dolls record or a Nelly record or a R. Kelly record, for that matter, you know, all big hits, all talking about basically the same thing. Yeah, but those, I mean, those artists aren't in the thrall of a very obvious and very public mental breakdown. Well, I mean, this woman is and, one step out of the loony and, bin. And she could have been writing about that stuff. Agreed. But looking for, for lyrical content on a Britney Spears record, <laughs> let me tell you, Jim, it's not going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. This record is strictly made for the moment in terms of how it's going to sound on a dance floor. That's what it was designed for. It's designed very well. You're not going toward a burn it or something, I think, are you? You know, like I said... Buy it, the, burn it, trash. You're not going to do that. I, I think it's worth hearing for the standpoint that this oh is going to sound great on a dance floor. Oh, my God. What she doing in terms of the content of the record is no different than any of these other artists in the top 40 are doing. And in fact, it's a very mild, mild version of it. She's an airhead. There's nothing there. But around her is this incredibly great sounding production team. This record is going to sell because it's going to sound great in clubs. Well, I think, but everybody connected to this record ought to be ashamed of themselves. You know, it's as if, like, Kurt Cobain was walking into the studio every day with the shotgun, you know, and, and nobody noticed. And, you know, to be singing basically, like evoking prostitution on this record at the same time that she's such a mess. I, I don't know. It's just such a bad taste in my mouth. This is a trash record. Yeah. I mean, you know, to my mind, it's like she's complicit in this. She doesn't care that she's being exploited. She and wants neither to do be you. exploited. She wants to be a product. It sounds good on the dance floor. That's what it's aiming for. And it's, it's just about that. It's not about feeding your brain with anything. It's about your body and feeling good on the dance floor. And on that level, it succeeds. You know, it's a burn it record. This is a song called Hope for Happiness from the first album by The Soft Machine. Legendary English psychedelic rockers, jazz fusion pioneers from the quaint town of Canterbury. Took their band name from the novel by William S. Burroughs, the beat poet, and uh, are one of those bands that may not have sold a million records in their career, but the people who heard them were hugely 
influenced by them. And Robert Wyatt was the drummer. He's going to be our guest on Sound Opinions in a couple of minutes. We're going to have a really interesting conversation with him because his 40-plus year career in the music business has gone so many places. But it started with this group, The Soft Machine, which uh, really was pioneering that fusion between bebop, hard bop, and rock and roll, especially of the psychedelic variety. They shared bills with the Jimi Hendrix experience. They were a huge influence on the Pink Floyd. Wyatt on drums and vocals, as I said, Kevin Ayers on bass and vocals, David Allen for a time on guitar, Mike Ratledge on keyboards, Hugh Hopper on bass. Those are names that if you check any progressive rock record in your collection through through the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, art rock records, collaborations with Brian Eno, these guys popped up again and again as great players. Robert Wyatt had already left the group in 1973 when he was drinking in, at a party in England, and he fell out of a third floor window. That was an accident that rendered him a paraplegic. He's been confined to a wheelchair ever since. With the 1974 album Rock Bottom, his second solo album, but really where his career as a solo artist started, he mined the depth of that pain and also celebrated his marriage to uh, the woman who's still his companion, Alfie, a renowned poet in England uh, under the name Alfreda Benji, who has been uh, collaborating with him and, and loving him, taking care of him ever since. It's a really one of Rock's great romances. One of the best parts of this story, Greg, is that Robert Wyatt is in the midst of a real career resurgence. With the album before last, Cuckoo Land, in 2003, he found himself nominated in the UK for the Mercury Prize, that prestigious combination of the Critics Awards in America with uh, with the Grammys. Now, at age 63, he's uh, signed to Domino Records, which has been giving us some of the best indie rock out of the UK, Franz Ferdinand and Arctic Monkeys, and he has a whole new generation of musicians uh, singing his praises, as well as some old friends like Brian Nino and Phil Manzanera of Roxy Music and uh, Paul Weller of the Jam and Style Council stopping by to play on his new record. So it's a heck of a story, and we took Robert Wyatt from the beginning right up to the present. We are on the line with the great Robert Wyatt in London. Yeah, hello, hello. Robert, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It struck me that, that your friend and frequent collaborator, Brian Eno, once told me something about how I may not have sold a million records in my lifetime, but everyone who bought one, it's like a, a single strong spice in a complicated stew. You know, they pick up a little <laughs> something from my work, and it, and it comes through. It strikes me that your catalog has always been the same way, hugely influential on many musicians and people who know your music and love your music, uh, leading up to comic opera, this fantastic new album. We wanted to kind of take you through your career a bit, if you'd indulge us. Yeah, of course. That'd be a pleasure, yeah. Robert, first of all, let's talk a little bit about where this album is coming from. Comic opera is sort of a culmination in a lot of ways of what you've been up to for the last 30-plus years as a solo artist. And it's interesting to me that you have attracted, as Jim was saying, a a new audience in a lot of ways. You've got Tom York of Radiohead quoting you on on the Radiohead website, and you've got Alexis Taylor of Hot Chip writing uh, your biography for you in your uh, press release for the new record. First of all, what about the influence that you've had on these younger musicians? Paul Weller is playing on your record, Brian Eno. You do seem to have this ability to reach out to these new musicians and a new generation of, of players. Is this something that you seek out? I mean, is this something that you've been trying actively to do over the last 30 years? Or do they sort of come to you and say, Robert, we're your fans, we're going to end up playing on your record? How does that work? No, I mean, it's a paradox, really. I don't really reach out. I, I don't have a kind of a strategy or about what's going to happen to what I do. The only thing I can think, because I don't really know the answer to your question, all I can think is that 
if people want to hear somebody just doing what they really want to do on a record and un, un, unaffected by by you know what they think anybody is expecting then you know maybe they get that from me you know but I don't uh, deliberately look for anybody in fact I'm sometimes very obstinately anachronistic you know both in all kind of ways musically in my politics anything you like and I just think well this is what I think and this is this is where I feel comfortable it, maybe that gives other people confidence to do the same in their own lives but I don't know I really don't know well, I, well, I, I, I think what's appealing though Robert is that you once told me in an interview that you didn't feel what you had was a musical career and maybe that's what's appealing to so many of these musicians from different generations is the sense that you are doing music for music's sake and it doesn't seem to be anything else more involved in it than just that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just like everybody, I'm having a life. I mean, it's a funny thing when you get, <laughs> when you get a label, you know, whether it's Postman or Pope, you know, that tends to sort of shrink people's idea of who you are, you know. What you are, first of all, is a person, you know, trying to, I don't know, find love, food and, and shelter. But I don't go around thinking... You know, I'm a musician. What what is a music musician's response to this situation? I just respond to things like like a person trying to work it all out, same as anybody else. It's just that music's the only thing I can do with any consistency or you know with any certainty of getting it come out right. Before we get off the topic of younger musicians, Robert, I've always wanted to ask you because Damon Albarn of Blur and Gorillas has told me several times about being a young tyke sitting backstage finger painting while his dad was doing his job, and his dad was the road manager of Soft Machine. So, do you remember this precocious young fellow uh, running around backstage? I wish I did, and that reminds me: always watch the children now because they're going to watch you. <laughs> In fact, they're going to be the ones who describe you when you're old and grey, and they'll be the only ones who remember. His dad was a very inventive uh, bloke. He invented some domes, uh, geo, what's something, domes? Oh, geodesic, uh, domes geodesic domes, yeah. They're geodesic domes that you could put on a beach and you could sort of set them up. I mean, this is in sort of mid, just mid-60s and stuff. And uh, indeed, we worked uh, on a beach in, in south of France, really, around and in one of, one of, one of his domes. And that was how we, how we met. And uh, I remember little boys scampering about, but... Uh, uh, sorry, Damon, I didn't know it was you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, going back to those days, I mean, when you and Hugh Hopper and Mike Ratledge were, were in grammar school together... Uh, you're, That's true. Were you thinking about music as a career then, though? I'm curious about your mindset then, about the role that music would play in your life. No, not at all. The only thing... I hardly knew Mike because he was older than me. And it, when you're at school, even a year older is a, a big gulf. I mean, he was a school prefect. He was tall. His father was a headmaster. You don't even talk to people like that. You know, how do you, you wouldn't be the first one to speak. But he was, and he came up and said, I hear you have a Cecil Taylor record. Can I possibly borrow it? I did indeed have a Cecil Taylor record. And I was in with the sixth form, or whatever form he was in, because I had Cecil Taylor live at Newport with Steve Lacey on soprano saxophone. <laughs> this was my in. And I was allowed to, um, you know, play with the big boys because of that. But no, no, I didn't think of being a musician. <laughs> I just wanted a girlfriend. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll continue our conversation with Robert Wyatt, and then later in the show, Greg and I will review the new album from Robert Plant and Alison Krauss.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're continuing our interview with Soft Machine founder and experimental musician Robert Wyatt. When we left off, Robert was recounting his early experiences in music leading up to one of the most exciting years in music, 1968. Well, those were an extraordinary couple of years. The Soft Machine shared bills with... Pink Floyd, and many of the great British bands in the Psychedelic Explosion, Jimi Hendrix and The Experience, they were here in 68 when the, the riots were happening. Mm-hmm. The Democratic. What was that whole swirl like? I mean, in a sense, it's a bit like asking, I've said this before, but it's a bit like asking the cooks what, what was going on in the, in the restaurant. I mean, uh, <laughs> I was really nervous about trying to keep up to speed. I mean, with someone, Mitch Mitchell on drums, a wonderful drummer playing with Hendrix. I, I was playing before him to an audience that was waiting for Hendrix. This, this, can take up, this, is, this can take up a lot of your mind, you know, when you're worried about things. I was just trying to play as well as possible. I think that's all we were doing. And just scrambling around, leaving wet socks on radiators because we had to leave suddenly to go somewhere else. And, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I have to say, just sitting in the wings, standing in the wings, watching Hendrix after we played, was just, was just so wonderful, you know. I mean, you knew right then. So really, it was a it was a happy year for me. But I was scared to see stuff that really frightened me. There was a sense of I wouldn't say civil war, but unrest. So I knew that there was a kind of electric atmosphere there. Were your were I, didn't your poli- really, I didn't. I wasn't really knowledgeable about politics. So your politics weren't formed yet. I mean, the body no. of your solo work has this strong political feeling, and you're known as as someone who's always been anti-war and outspoken. Um, so that it was a learning process, I guess. It, it was, yeah. I mean, that that came out. I didn't get that. I think a lot of people uh, come into politics maybe they go to university and they read books and uh, I came to it through music because my love of music was mostly like black American music and so on that I was instinctively very anti-racist and I found out that you know the more right-wing people were the more racist they tended to be and so that pushed me sort of found myself on the left Mm -hmm. you know just by default. You know, you mentioned, too, you know, the Cecil Taylor record as being an in for you uh, with the Soft Machine guys. And it's interesting that these young guys in England, uh, you guys were, were really jazzed by the jazz records coming out of America, Mingus and Monk, Ornette. Contrast that to the Rolling Stones, who are big blues heads, or the Beatles, who are into, you know, Little Richard and, and Buddy Holly and things like that. How did that work, that jazz became such a big part of what Soft Machine does and still a big part of what you do today? I'd, I'd studied drumming with a few jazz drummers. I mean, a lot of people who don't play jazz, you know, the, the masters of their instruments are jazz musicians. And indeed, a lot of the people who play on records that aren't jazz records are jazz musicians, like musicians on Motown records, for example, or on James Brown's records. So uh, that that's in there, sort of built in. But the problem with rock and roll, of course, is it's so loud. And the, the kind of techniques you use on a, in a normal jazz context just wouldn't cut through. And that... In, you know, no point in doing things that nobody's going to hear or just rumbling away. You've got to sort of find a way of cutting. I mean, I, I listened to other people trying to do this. I mean, the most useful drummer to listen to really was Elvin Jones because there was such weight in what he did, such a kind of the rolling thunder of Elvin Jones. He had all the, all the, all the authority and weight of, of a rock group just on his own. I was a jazz fan enough to really want to keep that cymbal thing going and the kind of uh, the breathing uh, in and out feeling of, of good cymbal playing. And so uh, I always wanted to keep that element available to me. And I suppose that's the, 
that's where the jazz just stuck in. I never really wanted, I never gave up on that. I, I just heard it that way, so I just kept doing it. an extraordinary drummer, Robert. Uh, the fluidity and the freedom inherent in those soft machine records, the combination of singing about, I want to be naked, I want to be totally nude, and the drums are rollicking and rampaging. And <laughs> it's just some of my favorite music ever. Suspended and stalking, but more sexy than the tight girls are wearing, but even then worth the time wasted, time that could be spent completely new, naked. In 73, then, you had this tragic accident, yeah, a drunken fall out of a window. You've been in the wheelchair ever since, unable to play the drums. You were forced right. with this moment to decide, you know, how do I continue to make music? There's this album, Rock Bottom, comes out in 74. It's about two things in a way, coming coming back to the living from this accident and this joyful relationship with, with your wife, who's still with you, Alfie, who contributes to the new album, who's been with you and your collaborator, your partner ever since. What was that time like? I mean, Rock Bottom, to anybody who hasn't heard it, is one of the most cathartic and moving albums in the history of rock. When you're drunk, you're terrific. When you're drunk, I like you mostly late at night. You're quite all right, but I can't understand the difference you in the morning when it's It was really just a question of what can I do? I mean, it was quite good for me in a way because it, it made the whole palette much smaller, you know, of what I had available to me. So I had to really uh, think about uh, singing as the main event and and keyboard playing as the main event. And it, the timing was quite good in the sense that I'd had sort of 10 years as a kit drummer in various people's bands. And during that time, I'd accumulated ideas of my own about how songs could be and so on. And then Alfie herself had a big input because, she, although you know she was very respectful of what we did, she she had said that she felt that some of the music we were doing was a bit sort of congested, a bit too clever. There, there wasn't enough breathing space in it. And um, you know she played me things like Van Morrison's Astral Weeks and stuff. And I remember hearing uh, James Brown live at the Apollo in some shop in New York, actually in '68, and just the repetitive thing and that kind of trance-like atmosphere that that created. And I sort of, I thought this is the kind of way I could go that didn't require really the um, acrobatic virtuosity, you know, of a jazz musician, but I could still use the feeling that I got, uh, you know, the fluidity of, of jazz. You were releasing these remarkable solo records post-Soft Machine, and you were also releasing some really remarkable singles where you were sort of interpreting pop music in your own way. You know, The Monkeys, I'm a Believer, or Sheik's At Last, I'm Free. So you, were, you, were sort, you definitely had an ear out for what was happening in the pop world and, and making your own versions of it. How was that working that you would, you know, say a song like I'm a Believer is something that you wanted to appropriate and, and do your own version of? I've always liked pop music, and I've always been uncomfortable with people who are thinking that we were trying to transcend it or do something better than that. I always think pop music is, you know, the folk music of the industrial era, hmm. and folk music is, to me, the most serious music in the world because it's, you know, the music of the people and uh, the songs you can sing or dance to. That's what it means. It wasn't invented by the pop culture. It's been going on, I should think, for most of human history. 
And so, you know, you hear these things going on around. And I, it's just that sometimes I hear bits of material that if you put them in another context, they would be listened to differently, really. So that's the case of doing a chic song. I think, you know, this will only be heard by dance audiences, and it's too good a tune mm -hmm. to only be heard by dance people. Or um, the I'm a Believer I just did because I wanted to see what would happen <laughs> if I did a monkey's tune but, te but pretending that it was McCoy Tyner on piano. <laughs> and so if you listen out for the piano part, it was my attempt at... Imagining what McCoy Tyner would do with a monkey song. You actually had a hit with that as well. I think it was like top twenty in the UK. I mean, how did how it did May more or less almost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I I well, you you were face. on top of the pops though with it. <laughs> well, I was top of the pops, but it, top of the pops uh, was a very uh, yeah. I mean, I was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been great. Like you subverted the whole system, you know. It's like, <laughs> how did I get here, right? Yeah, well, it was a bit like that. Yeah, it's interesting, Robert. That, that you know, there's been three strains to your work at various points, focusing on them: the the personal song, the political song, and the pure fantasy fantastical song. Comic opera is, is a record in three acts, like an old-school Western opera, each of them devoted to one of those themes. It's got a fantastic cover on there, just as you are, that you interpret a gorgeous love song. In a lot of ways, this is, you know, if we had to choose one album to give to the Robert Wyatt initiate, we could hand them this disc and say, this is pretty much a good synopsis of everything this man has done in this incredible four-decade career. I'm very happy to hear you say that. I love that idea. But Thank this you, wasn't yeah. conscious at all. <laughs> because it started It started well, you look, just in your bedroom, right? Well, I mean, the thing is, look, I mean, I'm getting in my 60s, and I can't say, you know, in the future I'll do this, that, and the other, because I've got a feeling, well, ever since I've been in this century, you know, the kind of, this is the future, as far as I'm concerned. And I've had a half a century in, uh, in one century, and now, you know, I'm going to get a few years in this one. It feels like a strange country this century to me. It feels like, you know, I've been moved to another place I feel like an immigrant in someone else's culture you know when I look at even just at the technology around me so I think now is the time anything I've got to get down or pinned down or have another look at I'm, I'm going to do it now you know it's that look in your eyes telling It's a, it's a really emotional record. You know, Jim mentioned that song, Just As You Are. Could you talk a bit about that, Robert? Because this is a dialogue between a woman and a man. Mm -hmm. The man, it seems to be having some problems, uh, an alcoholic perhaps, although it's not stated directly in the song. Where did that song originate from? Well, that was a very straightforward event. And it's funny enough, we've been reading about how songs were written in the days of the Brill Building, or, you know, the pop songs in, in the days of the great professional pop songwriters who were, you know, working just cracking out songs from dawn to dusk one at the piano the other leaning over the piano in that romantic image you get from old films but it so happened uh, we had a day at the studio when the engineer was ill and couldn't turn up but brian you know came around for a just to say hello have a cup of tea because he's only a short bicycle right away from the film manzanera studio so he came to see us and he said right and he made us work he said okay let's do something Let's write a tune. He didn't mean us, he meant you. He said, Robert, write, get some chords. Right, that'll do. Start there. Okay, <laughs> Alfie, think of a line. She said, oh, I, don't know, I don't know, just as you. I said, that'll do, go and write some lyrics. And he sent her off to write lyrics. And she came back with this sort of 
stuff that she hadn't almost got time to tone it down of anger that had been in her about the fact that I'd been drinking and pretending that I hadn't been during the daytime. And this was uh, out of order. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, well, let's uh, try and get a nice chord for that. (laughs) 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 That's my job, you know what I mean? So, um, but then I thought, well, I won't be able to sing this. I'll put that to one side because it's a woman singing to me, you know, how do you do that? So, but then Alfie wrote a reply for me to sing when she very graciously, you know, gave me back some kind of dignity. And basically then we had a song and it was just a question of finding a couple of people to play on it. So we got, um, well, Yaron Stavi, a wonderful bass player from Israel who played on most of my record to do a bass line. And then Monica Vasconcelos, who's a Brazilian who lives in uh, London at the moment, uh, to, to sing the woman's part. And then Paul Weller came along and stuck some guitar on top and we had a record. Mm-hmm. Paul Weller of the Jam and the Style Council. That's right. You yeah. dropped the name Phil Manzanera, the Roxy Music guitarist, and Eno. Eno just coming around and, and throwing <laughs> things in whenever That's he great. feels like it. Uh, tell us about the Enotron, Robert. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I Eno's got, he's got so many things, as everybody knows. And uh, but one of the things I really like him doing is actually singing, and I, I I always like to encourage him to do more of it. I really like his voice, and so what I did, I got him. I've done this with two or three other people. But the Inatron is simply, it's like a Mellotron, only all the notes are Brian. So you just get someone to sing a scale, and uh, either a chromatic scale or, you know, a whole tone scale or whatever, uh, you know, whatever's comfortable. But enough so that you can, with a bit of engineering, get a complete keyboard for about an octave and a half, maybe two octaves. And then the engineer, Jamie Johnson, uh, transfers the scale to the relevant notes on, on the keyboard, and I can play Eno singing as a keyboard part I, I used it on a track called Out of the Blue on, on this record and uh, I hope to use it again beautiful stuff and uh, one thing I wanted to comment on is your singing which is I think one of the most beautiful aspects of your records you, you don't sound like any other singer out there and one of the things that I think you've developed over the years is a very conversational style like you're almost talking to the listener yet it's still melodic there's still a sense of there, there's a singer here but that conversational approach to your vocals was that something that you consciously developed or is that just your is that just something that that's uh, happened over the years well, I suppose there, there, no, there is thought in it. Uh, I mean, I did start out doing a lot of improvising and what used to be called in jazz scat singing and various vocal effects and so on, and I've always enjoyed doing that. But I found that the most effective way to sing songs is just... Uh, and the most effective... Especially, this really came about from writing my own songs, and I found that the lyrics that work, work best sound like the kind of things that you would say, you know. So it's a combination of getting the songs that do that anyway and then just not sort of pushing it too hard. I, I try and get the, the character of the song built into the words and, and, the, and the lyrics and, and the tune. I try and b- build the song so that they kind of sing themselves and I can just sort of do it in a way that just sounds as if it was casually thrown together. I mean, some are pretty casually put mm-hmm. together. Alfie has uh, certainly appointed herself my unofficial vocal coach when she get she sort of frowns at me sometimes said, is that it are you leaving it like that you really could do it better than that and she <laughs> makes me stuff do stuff better so I try to but 
On the whole, yeah, it, it's it's just sung it's sung conversation is what it is. And, and yet, it's heavy heavy stuff. I mean, this uh, the comic opera moves from these kind of very personal songs in the first act to broader political view uh, in the second act, where you're actually one of the songs, "A Beautiful War," is told from the perspective of a bombardier. I believe it seems like he's opening the hatch and dropping bombs on people, and it was That's a, right, yeah. it was a beautiful day because we were, we so successfully dropped these bombs and wiped out the entire village. So I Well, presumably, that's that's how it feels, you know, a job well done. In fact, Alfie had seen a, a film about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki about the year I was born, I think, about 1945. And the pilot who did it, you know, said, well, look, this is a job. I understood that this was, you know, a way to end the war and so on. And he said it was a beautiful day. And mm. he was very happy about that because he meant there was no cloud and they could get to Hiroshima. The reason they didn't, I believe, do Nagasaki straight away is because it, there was cloud over it, so they couldn't do it on that day. But they saved that. They wanted to try another bomb anyway on Nagasaki, so that all worked out very well, well for them. And I'm just thinking of, um, you know, these people aren't Machiavellian or evil. You know, uh, evil isn't like that, and bad things aren't like that. A lot of awful things happen because somebody's doing what they think they ought to do. You know, that's the truth. <laughs> Well, Robert, even though you're about to be 63 and you've been with us a long time, we hope you're with us a lot longer. Comic Opera is a great accomplishment. It's a fascinating career, and we really thank you for being on Sound Opinions. Well, you're very kind to say all that, and thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us your comments on the Robert White interview or anything else on today's show. Call our hotline one 888 859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album from Robert Plant and Allison Krauss.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're hearing is a song written by the birds, Gene Clark. It's called Through the Morning, Through the Night, on a new record called Raising Sand. Alison Krauss singing the lead vocal on that uh, particular song. The harmony vocals by one Robert Plant, the golden god from Led Zeppelin days. What an odd pairing. Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, together on a record produced by one T-Bone Burnett. Plant, of course, uh, the, the lead voice in Led Zeppelin. A lot of talk about Led Zeppelin reuniting, playing a show in London in November. Plant is going to hook up with uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones to give this one-off show. But the thing but, is, but this is a priority for him. This, this he, said that, yeah. he said that there's going to be no Zeppelin tour, at least for some while, because he's going to tour with Alison Krauss. Exactly. He has been talking about doing this record for a number of years. He was the one that reached out to Krauss because he was smitten with what she was doing with her band Union Station. First of all, she's a virtuoso fiddle player, a great songwriter, and a, uh, a producer. So she wears three hats in that band. And uh, what she has done is updated bluegrass and hardcore country music for a contemporary audience. Wonderful band, wonderful musician, with a beautiful, pristine voice, as you could hear on that particular song. Plant wanted to work with that voice and with those kind of harmonies. He has a side to him that uh, perhaps is not known to Led Zeppelin fans, and that is his appreciation uh, for American roots music, uh, not only the blues, which is very evident in Led Zeppelin, but also country music. He, he loved that vernacular and the way it filtered in to the West Coast music that he loved in the 60s, like the birds, Gene Clark, and that influence as well, can be heard in a lot of his solo recordings, as well as in Led Zeppelin's music. Let's hear a song from the new record. This is a record in which Plant and Krauss are the primary vocalists. Around them is a band assembled by a T-Bone Burnett in the studio. Mark Rebo on guitar, Dennis Crouch on bass, Jay Bellarose on drums, the great uh, Norman Blake on acoustic guitar. And this is a song that was written by Alan Toussaint, the great New Orleans musician. It's called Fortune Teller. It gives you a sense of the kind of vibe this band has. It is Robert Plant on lead vocals. But listen to the wordless harmonies that Alison Krauss adds to this particular song, and I think it works really well. Fortune Teller from the new record Raising Sand by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss on Sound Opinions. Went to the fortune teller Had my fortune read I didn't know what to tell I had a dizzy feeling in my head She took a look at my palm She said, son, you feel kind of warm She looked into a crystal ball She said, you're in Told for free. Oh, 
That is Fortune Teller from the new album Raising Sand, the collaboration between Robert Plant and Alison Krauss on the uh, the great folk and roots label Rounder Records. That is one of the best moments on the album, in my opinion, Greg. You do have a phenomenal band here with Mark Rebo tearing it up, uh, Greg Lees playing uh, pedal steel at times. Uh, you forgot to mention him. T-Bone Burnett, fine producer, love what he's done with Sam Phillips. Here, I think he's trying to imitate Daniel Lanois and often doing this kind of smoky, foggy, buried under a bunch of blankets kind of sound in the middle <laughs> of the night. I had high hopes for this record because one of my favorite sides of Robert Plant is that Led Zeppelin three side. I don't think it's much of a surprise to people to, to hear that he loves bluegrass music because, you know, American country music came in large part from Celtic folk music. And, and Plant has always loved that. And you heard a lot of that in Zeppelin. He's got a great voice for rockabilly, a great voice for – look, he's got one of rock's best voices, period. It's not aging all that well. But, boy, he can sure sing better than you or me and most human beings on this planet. He's lost a little of the high register, but that's okay. He's still got a wonderful voice, and Alison Krauss has a beautiful voice. And I don't know why they don't gel. It's just a sleepy, kind of boring record with a few exceptions. That was one of them. Even even that, though, is a low-key cover of Fortune Teller. I wish there was more excitement on this record. It really left me wanting. I, I think you got to pay attention to this record, Jim, and uh, I think you're, you're looking for something that's not there. I think what they were going for was this kind of spooky, eerie, post-midnight kind of vibe, and I think they really got it. First of all, the choice of material is great. The Gene Clark songs that they're doing, they're doing some Everly Brothers material. Mm-hmm. We just played uh, the Alan Toussaint song. You mentioned Plant as a vocalist. I'd never heard him, though, as a harmony vocalist. And on this record, when he harmonizes with Krauss, when she's kind of in the foreground and he's harmonizing with her, particularly on that song, Sister Rosetta Goes Before Us, I was, like, knocked out. I go, man, I didn't know Robert Plant could sing like that. I hear Rosetta singing in the night Echoes of light that shine like stars after they're gone Krauss, her voice is, is amazing. I love the way they trade off two sides of this tale. Uh, there's these two Gene Clark songs, Polly Come Home and Through the Morning, Through the Night, which we played at the top, where they're sort of answering each other. And around them, they have a, there's about three or four more rocking tunes, but it's mostly a quiet, subtle kind of record. And I have to say, it's one of those records that really rewards attention. Slap on the headphones, three in the morning, this is the record built for that kind of mood. It's not the kind of record you want to be listening to, you know, driving down the highway. But for a certain <laughs> type of mood, this is a wonderful, wonderful, spooky record, and I love it. I, I say buy it. Well, I have to give it a burn it, because I don't know. I mean, I have listened to it half a dozen times, and it's okay. I don't know if I would care if it wasn't Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, and, and you have to think about it in those terms, too. I wish it had been a little more, so it's only a burn it for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Whenever possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I take a turn and pop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox, playing you a track we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what do you got? 
Jim, it was like you were reading my mind. You mentioned uh, Led Zeppelin three, and that's exactly where I'm going <laughs> for, for the Desert Island. Because when I thought when I listened to this uh, Alison Krauss Robert Plant record, I immediately thought of Led Zeppelin three, which is one of my favorite Led Zeppelin records and one of the most underrated. One of the mm-hmm. ones that uh, a lot of people overlook when they talk about Led Zeppelin. Uh, a lot of people talk about the whole lot of love inventors of heavy metal side of Led Zeppelin, the godless thunder uh, that the band brought. And, you know, they, they were great at that. But the reflective side of the band was often overlooked. And Robert Plant, as a vocalist, was often overlooked. A lot of people think of him as that sort of banshee screamer wailing yeah. over the page guitar and the bottom drums. But, man, the guy had a side to him. And, and that, as you mentioned, that Celtic folk music, that West Coast psychedelia, the influence of, of the birds and Moby Grape, that was seeping into the music, too. And it was all over the third Led Zeppelin record. About half the record was acoustic. It was largely inspired by a retreat that Page and Plant took to a cottage in Wales after basically, yeah, exactly. A couple of years of nonstop touring. They were burned out. They went to this little cottage, wrote some acoustic folk songs, and some of the most beautiful Led Zeppelin music emerged from that little hiatus in the country. Jimmy Page is at his absolute best on the song I'm going to play. He's finger-picking in that bluegrass acoustic guitar style. He adds some pedal steel to this song, and there's an electric guitar solo in the middle of it. So over the course of about two and a half minutes, you hear Page on three different instruments setting the mood for this particular song, and Plant just fits right in, folds right into it. A really sensitive reading of a lyric written by Page about lost love. There's nothing earth-shaking going on here. We've all lost people, but this is just a very moving evocation of that. The conversational grace in his voice, I think, is a real revelation from the guy who sang Whole Lot of Love just six months before, yeah, you know, on yeah. a previous record. Here's a song from Led Zeppelin Three, a beautiful song. Page and Plant at their very best. Tangerine on Sound Opinions. Day. I only find it slips away to gray And hours they bring me pain
Tangerine from Led Zeppelin 3, My Desert Island Jukebox. Great pick. choice, Mr. Cod. Can't get enough Zeppelin. Oh, my God. Thank you, Jim. And uh, next week, something to look forward to. We are going to be discussing all this activity around a band called Joy Division, a band that put on only two studio albums in its lifetime, now the subject of two movies and three major re-releases. Why all this activity 30 years later about this band, Joy Division? We're going to discuss that next week. Good question, Greg. As always, we have some thank yous on Sound Opinions. This is our 100th show on Chicago Public Radio, on the public radio system, and we wouldn't be here without the efforts of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, our intrepid team of producers. We've been getting some help from Dave Mahler, the intern. Let us not forget Matt Spiegel, who was our longtime producer, has left us for La La Land, you know, <laughs> and, and people like Dino Armiros, our attorney, who helped bring us here. But most of all, this man, Tori Southside Malatia, who put his faith in this show. I mean, what a crazy idea, bringing the world's only rock and roll talk show to public radio when he had to go to his governing board. And they <laughs> said, what are you thinking? He got right in their face, and this is what he said to them. In case you've missed one of our recent shows, here's a record we reviewed on Sound Opinions. Another year is come and gone Another circle round the sun Another thousand tears of fallen I don't ever count on the coast I'm surrounded by your love And days are never long Days are never long enough. That's Steve Earle duetting with his wife, Allison Moore, on a track from Washington Square Serenade, his new album. Incredibly prolific, Steve is. We've heard him do all sorts of things, including on the last two albums, Jerusalem in 2002 and The Revolution Starts Now in 2004. Absolutely searing, angry, acidic critiques of the state of the world. Now Steve's inside himself. A happy Steve Earle is a really unusual Steve Earle. This is a man who's who's fought off, famously, a heroin addiction, mm -hmm. has done time in prison. So that's strange. The production is also strange, although I love it. Mm -hmm. This is a futuristic, looped, sampled production at times, but it's done in a back porch hootenanny way. Overall, I really like the album. And if it's not what you expected first from Earle, there are rewards here. So it's it's a buy it record for me. Jim, this has all the makings of the midlife crisis record. I'm leaving my past behind. I'm moving to a new city with a new girl. I'm reinventing my sound. You know, some of it works, some of it doesn't. He's still a very fine songwriter. I miss some of the, the political broadsides of the recent records. I got to say, I'm not sure I like the happy Steve as much as I like the angry Steve. So I'm going to give it a burn it. It's not a full-on buy it. I think there's some problems with this record. I like the sonic experimentation. I think he's written some very fine songs here, and he's written some songs where he just seems to be phoning it in. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. 
Hey guys, uh, Jim Marks from the south side of Chicago with some more thoughts on the music industry. Uh, Universal wants to go to a subscription-based system. Big surprise. That means everybody has to keep paying over and over and over and over. They advertise it as, oh, you'll have access to everything. But you really get nothing. You pay your money, you pay your money, you pay your money every month, and then one month you decide not to pay, and you have no music. At least with iTunes, as long as I'm smart enough to make backups. I own the music. I own the file. Subscription-based services for music are just another way of the music industry trying to force people to keep giving them money. It has nothing to do with creativity. It has nothing to do with control or copyrights or anything else or artists. It's just money. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Steve calling from the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. I wanted to let you know I got turned on to your show by my buddy Bo in Rangoon in Burma when I was visiting him a couple years ago. Somehow uh, your show got past the generals and got onto his iPod through the Internet. We sat on his back porch and sucked on a couple of Singa beers and listened to your show. And I asked him who these guys were, and he said... He said he didn't want to know. He didn't want to know what you guys look like because he had this image in his head of a thing, a body with two heads, a big body and two heads, a Jim head and a Greg head. And these two heads are talking, the Jim head and the Greg head sometimes facing each other on the same body and sometimes <laughs> turn towards each other and arguing. So now I have the same image, the thing with two heads. And I want all your listeners to get that image stuck in their heads, too. Anyway, thanks for the great shows. You're in Asia now, and bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.